We left off last time with the Bade Karata Sutta. The Buddha's conception on solitude, ideal solitude, conception of it. Uh, Some of you are taking notes. Uh, If you want to, it's all right, but frankly, I don't think that's the point. Um, The information that's being given here is accessible anywhere. And what's more important is to put the practice into action now. This is a practice situation. Using the breath to help you listen. Also, if you don't look at me, but rather go inside, I won't be insulted. If you're sending a lot of energy out here, uh, you know, watching this mouth move and this hair and this face, I don't know. You've seen lots of faces before. See many more. But we left off um, the um, the gist of the of the sutta, and we'll go through it again a bit more tonight. Had to do with not clinging to the past, not clinging to the future, not drowning in the present. And one who does that is living in solitude, whether that person is in a crowded urban complex or alone in the forest. And of course, a place like the forest can help dramatically to accomplish that, but it's no guarantee of anything. This itself is very important for us here because most of us or all of us are lay people practicing and living in the world. And this very refined notion of what solitude is that the Buddha gives us suggests that it's not really essential to isolate yourself from society or from the world. And that if you're really living in the present, not always getting caught in the past, racing after the future, drowning in the present, then that's fine, that's wonderful. That's true solitude. Or a really good way or the best way to be alone. Now this aloneness, as you can see, doesn't mean isolation. Quite the contrary, it means more open to people, nature, objects. So although it was not uttered just for lay people, in this time period, since so many serious practitioners uh, are lay people who perhaps can't go away to retreat centers or forests at all or very often, it's helpful to have a teaching as profound as this one, if you trace it out, you'll see why, and I hope we can give some hints as to why it is, that doesn't exclude us simply because we live in cities and so forth. Where we left off, was 
was in regard to the samadhi practice that we're still basically emphasizing in this phase of the retreat and how that helps to really be present, to be in this moment right now. Uh, If you recall, uh, every time you're fully with an in-breath or an out-breath, if you're totally present, fully experiencing it, you're doing it. Those are real moments. If there's no attachment to the past or the future, and you're fully absorbed in the breathing, those are moments, and those moments deepen, extend themselves, and become more and more the way we live. So we're using the breath. Is this working? Yeah. Can you hear me back there? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Too much, huh? <laughs> Vicky, does that mean speak more softly and say fewer things? <laughs> so we take a relatively simplified object like the breath to practice on. Now, in doing that, as you know, I'm pretty sure, based on my experience and yours, that we've all had a lot of experience, certainly in these last few days, of what it's like for the mind to get caught in the past, to get caught in the future, to drown in the present. And the samadhi practice gives us an option that perhaps we didn't have or didn't know we had before, although in certain primitive ways we've done it, kind of approached it. That is, we've taken ourselves out of distressing situations by becoming absorbed in other situations like a movie or food or whatever. It's not quite the same, but sometimes it gets us out of bigger trouble, it seems. Okay, the new option that we have is like being able to switch to a a new channel. Let's say you're in channel obsessed with the past. On that channel, they only have old movies. You know, just from 1938 back. Lots of silent films. You have to really be a connoisseur of movies to enjoy them. The terrible acting and the directing is, you know, those. Or the future, you know, all whatever, science fiction. But we're lost. And if we can remember to extricate ourselves, it's a little bit like lifting a needle. For those of you who are, let's say, in your early 90s or approaching 100 years old, remember those phonograph records with needles? So it's like you can just, you lift the needle off what's playing, you know, going round and round like a broken record, and you put it on channeled breath. It's like you lift yourself out of sometimes torment because it's so strong. And if we can remember, we now have a very simple, a little home, a little sanctuary, a refuge. Take refuge in your breathing. And the stronger the practice of anapana sati becomes, of course, the the stronger that refuge is, the more accessible it is. So what we're doing, in a sense, is we're creating a home, an inner home. It's not the final resting place. 
It's not the home that Ajahn Chah is talking about. That Karato mentioned last night. But it is definitely a temporary home that is appreciated. So that you can enter into a state of absorption to some degree and release yourself from the repetitive proliferation of what the mind is perturbed by. And with training, with practice, just what we're doing, it's nothing more complicated, but it takes time and patience, as you know. We learn how to lift ourselves out of a troubled situation and to put ourselves in one that has some healing qualities in it, the breathing, some peace, some nourishment, and a way of getting out of the line of fire for a while, refreshing the mind, and then going back in, but this time, and that's when we come to Vipassana, this time uh, able, fit, to see into and let go of the past, the attachment to the past, see into and let go of the hankering after the future and so forth. Now also, every time we lift our attention out of our preoccupations and put it on the breath, those preoccupations are getting weakened a little bit. So there's another benefit that comes from it, that kind of habit energy, that conditioning. Because you know some of our preoccupations, we've done them before, we've heard them before. And so if we can just release ourselves, maybe in the middle of of what it is, and switch to the breathing, that gets weakened a little bit, but it, it doesn't uproot it. It doesn't see into it deeply enough. The understanding isn't there. It's just, it's an expedient It's a therapeutic and a helpful one. Actually, that's an important point. That is, it both shows the strength and the weakness of samadhi. That is, the uh, necessity to uh, re-educate the mind so that it has a, a calm and still strong Strength, this ability to be still and steady, which is necessary to do insight work. It's also healing in its own way, but it's limited. And if we get attached to it and not realize its limitations, we're in trouble again. Let me give you an example. Some of you have practiced with Ajahn Sumedho. Uh, who's been here a few times. Uh, He's an American uh, who's practiced in the Thai forest tradition. And he tells a story on himself. He's kind of the Buddhist Ram Dass in a way. Those of you who know him. That he was practicing in a forest monastery off in the jungle in his kuti, his, his little meditation hut. And his samadhi was really cooking. He was just in bliss and peace and everything was going beautifully. Those of you who have been to Thailand, you know that even in these very remote forest monasteries, now these little trucks turn up in the nearby villages to sell things and they play music very loud. (laughs) And it's usually about 10 or 15 or even 20 years. It's really old music from American music. And so Ajahn Sumedho was sitting in deep samadhi, feeling really happy, and suddenly 
he hears this song from the 60s, Tell Laura I Love Her. (laughs) And he heard a few refrains of Tell Laura I Love Her. And suddenly he broke down and started sobbing and crying. (laughs) Years of hard work just wiped out. So those old seeds from the past, they're very powerful. For those of you who are a little newer to the samadhi practice, please don't think that it's only in the sitting posture, that it's only with the breath. That is, as you know, we're emphasizing using the breath to be attentive all day long. And every time you are one with what you're doing, fully attending to, let's say, uh, chopping carrots or whatever it is you're doing, sweeping, vacuuming, walking, anything, getting dressed, getting undressed, fully present, you're contributing to the development of that steadiness. When you become one with what you're doing, you're contributing to it. And as you come back to the sitting practice, It only helps the sitting practice and the sitting practice nourishes action, the samadhi in action, especially if you apply it in the the life that's here. There's a daily life here as well. So I would encourage you to to keep that that up. Okay. um, Question. Probably you've heard it said, uh, many teachers have come through here, that one of the main things we're learning in Vipassana is how to bring attention to the way things are. The way things are in a given moment. How is it? The way it is right now. Not the way we want it to be, but just how is it for us right now, whether we like it or not. And that's an extraordinarily important skill. We'll be, we're doing that over and over and over again. So why, let's say, in our practice, to make sure that we all understand this, when those memories come up, strong memories or future imaginings, or we start drowning in presence stuff, in our, let's say in our sitting practice here, why don't we simply bring attention to that because that would be bringing attention to the way things are. The way things are is I'm really concerned with the past. That's perfectly good practice and more and more we are going to do that. But the reason that we've been encouraging you to go to the breath time and time again is that by and large what happens if you, particularly if the, the highly charged memories and future anxieties and aspirations, if you go into those and the mind, the mi- mindfulness is not adequate, we just drown. We get lost in it. And that's drowning in the present. And so what it is is a, an intelligent attempt to deal with a very formidable problem that we have strong forces inside of us, each one of us. The three toxins, greed, hatred, and delusion, one way of talking about it. 
And so what we're doing is, it's like going on an expedition, climbing a mountain or preparing for a sporting event, where one of the things we need to, to, for the mind to be fit, to look into itself in regard to the, the troubled aspects of itself, is for the mind to have a certain degree of steadiness and calm. You could even say happiness. I would say happiness, for the, for the mind to be gladdened. In fact, in my own practice, one day doing samadhi practice, it struck me as hilarious in a certain way what I was doing, what we're all doing. That is, it was in a particularly joyful sitting. And I realized, oh, I get what it is. I'm, this is helping to be happy enough to look at how unhappy I am. <laughs> It's something like that. <laughs> so we are going to do that. It is important for us to uh, see things, see the way things are. And, that, uh, and as the week unfolds, the remainder of the retreat, more and more, of course, we'll be moving in that direction, all along keeping the samadhi work going as well. Okay, to get back to the, to the sutta, uh, this is the Gato. It's a short poem by the Buddha that precedes some of the more detailed stuff that I mentioned last time. For those of you who are not here last time, I don't know that I can go into it all, but this is really the gist of at least much of it. Do not pursue the past. Do not lose yourself in the future. The past no longer is. The future has not, co- not yet come. Looking deeply at life as it is in the very here and now, the practitioner dwells stably and in freedom. We must be diligent today to wait till tomorrow is too late. Death comes unexpectedly. How can we bargain with it? The sage calls a person who knows how to dwell in mindfulness night and day the one who knows how to live alone. This is the true aloneness that the Buddha is talking about. Okay, in the first line, do not pursue the past. Some of what that has to do with, we've covered a lot of it, is much of the past, not all of it, is either very good things nice things that happen to us, if you recall the sutta, nice uh, feelings, bodily states, mind states, that are now gone. And so we yearn for them, the so-called good old days. Do you know? Did you have, do you remember the good old days? I don't know if they were as good, but certainly in the present we tend to see sometimes as the good old days. And there's suffering in that. There can be. Now sometimes, it's a kind of consolation. We use it to cheer ourselves up. We refer back to some time when uh, our body was in a condition that we approved of more. It was younger, perhaps, or healthier, more pliable, thinner. And we feel good, temporarily, a certain way. So some of the past has to do with that, a reaching back to help us with Uh, perhaps present suffering. We're not so happy with the present and we reach into the past. For example, 
my parents, who are now uh, in their mid-80s, um, for a while, when I, when I visit, uh, I would say 90% of what we talk about is their childhood in Russia and the childhood of my sister and myself growing up, most of it. And they get very animated. It has a bittersweet quality to it. Uh, they're not Vipassana meditators, so I don't say anything. <laughs> I just get into it and try to enjoy, enjoy the past. But you can see the reason being obvious. There's, in a way, there's no future. At least they think there is no future. The present is not all that much going on. Old and sick people reporting about sickness and death. Or there's regret from the past. That's another one we get lost in a lot. Uh, we've done things in the past that we wish we hadn't. Relationships that we've gotten into. Uh, actions that we've done. Perhaps crimes we've committed. Lies we've told. Who knows what. Businesses we've started. People we've hurt. <laughs> what? The way you group them. Oh, it's just my unconscious, I guess, working. <laughs> In Buddhism, uh, this is a common one for, for, for us. Regret is a, called in, in Buddhist psychology, regret is considered an indeterminate emotion. It means that it's not necessarily beneficial or negative. It depends what you do with it. So that, for example, if there's something that we've done in the past that's regrettable, we've hurt someone, we've made a, a poor choice, and so forth, then to use that to learn from, to use that to clarify and strengthen uh, our ability to act correctly in the present, it then, it's then becomes a wholesome activity. It's beneficial. So the fact that we did something wrong, that's why it's called indeterminate. It's a problem when we've done something wrong and then we dwell on it over and over and over and over again. Uh, rather than just learning from it, we can't let go of it and use it to, to harm ourselves. Okay, um, that's some of what the Buddha is talking about when he says... Do not pursue the past. It no longer is. That means, can we say goodbye to the past? Now, if you recall the other evening, this is not saying stamp out memory or to not dip into the past. It's not saying that. What it's saying is that if you're firmly rooted in the present, then you can actually use the past in many ways that are useful. If you're not firmly, if your grasp on the present is shaky and you get lost in the past in some of the ways that have been suggested, then it's suffering. And I'm sure we all have many examples of how we do that. For example, uh, one that comes to mind for me is when I first got to Korea, uh, some years ago, uh, the food was really difficult for me to, to... I didn't enjoy it, I didn't like the taste, and I couldn't hold it. 
uh, and there were three of us over there, and uh, three Americans, and was we were having a terrible time of it, and it was almost two weeks, and no sign of any improvement. We had uh, dysentery, and we tried to eat, and it was a nightmare. And we started all these jokes, and I was the leader of it. All these <laughs> jokes about, boy, uh, wouldn't it be nice to have some pancakes and maple syrup, and uh, even a McDonald's would would be great, right? And and our teacher, who some of you know, Sansanim, the Korean Zen master, he put up with it for about two or three days. It was just endless jokes about American food and you know, what we had had. And had I known that this was the way it was, I would have savored the food we were eating in America before we got here. Finally, one day he blew up at me and he just said, screamed at me really loud. It was frightening. He screamed and he said, where are you? And I said, Korea. And he said... <laughs> And he said, exactly. And he walked away. He left me there with my imaginary waffle. Uh, The Chinese Zen masters really, uh, I think, whether they got it from the sutra or not, that have developed this... um, sense of the here and now in a very beautiful way, and it's part of Zen in general, not, not just Chinese Zen, but they would talk about killing life and giving life to life. And in their terms, what I was doing was killing life. In a sense, it's a more subtle uh, expression of a violation of the first precept of not to kill. But I wasn't killing a body. What I was killing was the quality of life, because I was neither, I didn't have any waffles, and I wasn't with the uh, kimchi and, and, and white rice. And so I was kind of neither here nor there. Or if you're, let's say on this retreat, if you're having bancha tea and you're not a health fattest, and you're thinking about, you can't wait for the beer that you're going to get, and you're moving into the future. So you're not really drinking bancha tea and you don't have a beer. So where are you? You're in Barry, and we have these vegetarian, healthy things. Um, and giving life to life is a phrase they used, and they sometimes used just uh, drinking tea and eating rice, and it had a very profound meaning, is this uh, giving yourself over wholehearted, wholeheartedly to what you're doing. Or is the present moment is the most important moment, the wonderful moment of now, because it's the, it's the only time we're alive. The rest is all gone. Or what's to come is it's not here. And so that informs, it's, it's in the early teachings of the Buddha, and all Buddhist schools, of course, teach it and use it and have many techniques to try and help develop it. Uh, when we get to the future, Do not lose yourself in the future. Do not lose yourself in the future in addition to all the obvious, I think all these things are obvious, just we now have to see them in us when they come up. One of the ways in which we lose ourselves in the future is again, uh, we need hope. Sometimes things seem uh, discouraging. Um, nothing is going well, our health and personal life and so forth. And uh, without some ray of hope, 
life can be very difficult. Sometimes during the height of, of war situations, people lose hope. Or serious diseases. And so, a future can be very helpful. So the mind, uh, in some way, attempting to care for itself, reaches out and invents a future where there will be more enjoyable sounds and sights and sensations and persons and happenings. Now, while that can have some use, and so it's not a mechanical, just say, nope, you have to eliminate hope. Because there are times when to take that away from a person would be very, very cruel unless they're equipped with something deeper like a, a deep confidence or conviction that comes out of the practice. It's not so much that you have hopes about the future as that you know from, the, from practicing that the best way to take care of the future is by taking care of the present. And so you have some sense of it, of it being okay that everything is workable, the things that haven't arrived yet, the unknown future, it'll be workable no matter what it is. But from, so from the point of view of, of our practice, if you're doing a lot of that kind of futuristic nourishing of yourself, cheering yourself up with uh, imagined futures that are going to be helpful for you, uh, it can be very damaging to Dharma practice, because if it's done at the, if it uses up the energy, if the energy is put into an imagined future, and as a result you don't have enough of it to face and transform the present, then it's a short run, it's kind of stopgap solution, but finally uh, it's really not that helpful. And so, by and large, uh, in Dharma practice, that's why uh, we far prefer to face our present, no matter what it is, to learn how to do that. Again, I'm not stamping out hope. Sometimes it's very helpful, but we have to be careful that it doesn't become an obstacle to our practice. Uh, other ways in which the future, of course, debilitates us in the present when we have fears of the future. We have a lot of anxiety about the unknown. And you know, if you watch the mind and body and you begin to see the law of impermanence at work, one expression of that law is uncertainty. Everything's uncertain. It's very important to get comfortable with that, that everything's uncertain. If you reflect on it a lot, in those moments when uncertain things happen that you wouldn't have predicted, pause and understand that. Oh, boy. How would I have ever known that I'm here or that this would happen? Including us all being here, probably. But here we are. Um, If we keep imagining a horrible future and as a result debilitate ourselves in the present, obviously that's not going to help us much. Now, I'm bringing this up because sometimes there's misunderstanding. Uh, and people will say, does that mean we can't plan for our old age and, let's say, health insurance and save some money? No, it doesn't mean that at all. If you're, again, if you're planted s securely, if your both legs are 
right on the ground in the present, it can be quite sensible to plan the future. But that planning is very different. And let's say in this example, I'm sure you can think of others, to set aside some money for a day when your body won't be as strong, when you may be alone or not have as many friends or support, that would be sensible. Also, one person once asked in a group somewhat like this, he really enjoyed the retreat, and then at the end of it he was very sad, and he said the reason he was sad is that he was a city planner, and he felt that he loved this practice, but did it mean he would have to change his job? Uh, no, this could help him be a better city planner. I mean, he has to understand, though, that a lot of what he's doing, uh, it's conjecture about the future. We all had a plan to come here just to anticipate certain misunderstandings in regard to it. Okay. Looking deeply at life as it is in the very here and now, the practitioner dwells stably and in freedom. Stably and in freedom uh, means the ease that comes from not grasping at all the things that we've just talked about. So it's not the past necessarily or the future that's the problem, but how we relate to it. And in that sense, you're stable. You're in the midst of whatever is happening, and the mind does throw up past memories or memories, and the mind does imagine a future. And that in itself is not suffering. It's but because of... Uh, the way we relate to it, that it becomes suffering. And now here, here comes an important point, point. Looking deeply at life as it is in the very here and now. Okay, this is, we're now going to start to move the practice a bit. Move the practice a bit more in the direction of insight work and the development of wisdom, away from the breath as an exclusive object. The direction we're going to be taking more and more in the retreat will be to bring attention to the way things are. And at least some of the time that means we'll be suffering. And uh, what you will do, or you will attempt to do, or Karado or I will suggest you do, or, or it'll come out in the group, is that you turn to your suffering. You know, we've just listed a number of ways in which we find ourselves suffering. Let me uh, give you a sense of how we work with suffering when we use the practice of anapanasati, full awareness of breathing. Let's say you're angry. Hey, if you've had no exposure to these teachings, no meditation practice, very often what people do with their anger is either they get caught in it, they identify with it. Let's say you're angry at something that happened in the past. And you're just suffering in that moment because you can't help yourself. It's a powerful emotion and you're caught in it. You're caught up in it. 
in the anger. So one way is that we get lost in it, in the anger. The other way is that we deny it. What, me, angry? No, no, everything's fine. You know, we just, we have many skillful ways of intellectualizing it or pushing it under a rock some way. Now, our practice is neither of those options. It's not getting lost in it, and it's not denying it. So that if we're angry, it's somewhere in the middle. It's sort of coming right in there. It's fully experiencing the anger. But now here's the key point. And um, it's not complicated to grasp, but it's obviously a, a real art to learn. It has to do with how we take care of ourselves when we're suffering, when we find that we're suffering. You know, let's say if you hurt your physical body, um, scrape yourself or get too sunburned or whatever, we usually take care of ourselves. We'll wash it out, we'll bandage it, perhaps put some medicine on first. If some part of the body is tender, we'll avoid bumping into people and so forth. So we're taking care of that physical suffering. We're not as good at taking care of our, the suffering that in the heart when that comes. Now, the approach of this practice, the particular approach we're using on this retreat, how do we care for that suffering, that anger or suffering? We, in and of itself, if we don't do anything, it's just anger raging. Anger raging and we're, all, it's, we're caught in it. What we do is we add two elements that by and large are not there in a typical case of anger. We add mindfulness and we add the breath. The, the, the breathing, conscious breathing and mindfulness now are added to the total situation so that anger is not just alone, kind of on fire and raging. <coughs> we give it company. And what we bring to it is attention, first and foremost to the anger itself, and with the breathing, the in-breath and the out-breath. So it's something like breathing in, I experience my anger. Breathing out, I experience my anger. Breathing out, I experience the anger intensifying. I remember which it was, in or out, but anyway, the next one. In? Out. Out, okay. Breathing out, I feel the anger starting to thin out. And so it's not that we're aiming the breath at the anger, We're focusing our attention on the anger wherever you find it best to do that. Typically, the body is a good place at the beginning. And we're just allowing the breath to happen as it has been happening. And more and more, it's becoming a familiar friend. You may get tired of it. Probably you're bored to death with it sometimes. Right? Good, an honest man. But you'll see, finally, the breath is a good friend. And so... Uh, the awareness of the breathing and the anger, it becomes a unified field. It's not like you're trying to do two things at the same time, although I know at the beginning it does seem that way sometimes. They're, they become united. And the, the, the conscious breathing nourishes the mindfulness. Whereas before, the breath is just an object. 
We've, we're all breathing before we came to this practice. Once you turn your attention to it, it becomes a conscious object. Conscious breathing. That's nourishing. The quality of the breath changes, as you probably all know by now. If you're conscious of your breathing, even if you don't try to do anything else, something magical happens. That's mindfulness. Mindfulness has the capacity to set things right. It's a simple, such an unassuming quality and so undeveloped for most of us in our life. And we're all we're doing with the Buddha's genius to notice it, strengthen it over and over again, the ability to pay attention. And once we are mindful of the breath, it's a whole different breath. And so conscious breathing nourishes the mindfulness. It kind of accompanies the mindfulness. You could say it's soothing or gives it energy or warmth. And we approach the anger in a friendly and warm way. It's not our enemy. We don't approach it to try to get rid of it. We understand that the anger is there and we learn how to surrender to it. More and more you understand that that energy is actually, it is the practice. It's not an attempt to get rid of the anger because it's the energy of the anger is the other side of the energy of enlightenment, the energy of freedom. The freedom comes from these so-called negative states. It's more... Uh, when mindfulness touches anger or whatever it touches, especially as the mindfulness becomes stronger, it transforms it. There's a kind of alchemy that goes on. When the mindfulness really stays, learns how to stay with the anger, the energy of anger, the energy that's been held captive in the anger is released. And it becomes something else. It can become freedom, joy, peace, and it's accessible and available for us to use further in our practice. This is the non-dualistic approach. We don't see enemy, we don't see anger as an enemy. In this very profound sense, it is us. And don't, please don't ask right now, I thought you said there's no self. So what I would suggest is um, tomorrow after breakfast the instructions will change and uh, a little bit of what, what we said now will be said again but in a little bit more practical way so that you uh, gain a sense of how to work. But prepare yourself for it. We're, we're getting ready to look in on other energies that up to now we've not given as much attention to. We're learning to meet them in a non-violent way, gently, with compassion, you could even say, because we're suffering in that moment. And this is how we care for ourselves. We care for ourselves by bringing conscious breathing and mindfulness to the anger or replace anger with whatever else uh, is problematic for you at that moment.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.